Hello, and welcome to Folklore Fever. My name is Trevor Pullman, and together we're going to journey through stories that shape folklore from various parts of the world. Let's dig in. Hiro was running through the subway station, knowing that his train would be there any minute. Ikebukuro station was busy as always, and as it was the early evening, many people were on their way from office jobs or on their way out to clubs and bars. As Hiro pushed his way through crowds of people, he saw his train pull in at the station. As the doors began to open and a crowd surged out, Hiro panicked, thinking he wouldn't make it in time. When he was about 50 feet out from the doors, the tone chimed, signaling that the doors were closing. Hiro thought to himself that he couldn't be home late on his girlfriend's birthday because she would never forgive him. Just as Hiro was crossing the yellow safety line, the doors closed, sealing him off from the train. As he began to mutter swears under his breath, he looked at the clock which displayed the arrival time of the next train. It stated that the next train would not arrive for another 20 minutes. By then, his girlfriend probably would have started moving his things out of their apartment. Just before he gave up hope, he noticed that the doors were still open on one of the train cars. He looked both ways before darting into the cabin, just before the doors closed as the train began pulling away from the station. Hiro figured the doors on this particular car must be a little faulty and that he was in great luck, as the rest of the car was deserted with the exception of a very beautiful woman at the far end of the car who was reading a book and did not acknowledge Hiro's entrance on the train at all. Hiro sat down on a nearby seat, placing his umbrella and his bag in his lap. He only had a few stops to go on the train before he was near his apartment building. After the first stop, however, the doors to the train car did not open. Hiro chalked it up to this being a fairly slow station. It did not seem that anyone had approached the car anyway, nothing to be worried about. However, as the train left that stop, the lights in the cabin began to flicker and sputter. Hiro was wondering if this train car was having some electrical issues, but as a middle car, it would be more of a slight inconvenience than anything. The car doors were not hard to pull apart in case of a fire or electrical outage. As the train left the next station, the lights went out entirely in the car, with the glow of the subway cars on either side of Hiro's preventing him from being entirely blind. As he looked at the woman at the end of the car, he could see that she was still reading, in almost total darkness. Hiro stood up and walked to where the woman was seated and apologized before he asked if she was alright, and would she need help getting off the train as there was no power. The woman kept her nose buried in her book and did not acknowledge that Hiro had even spoken. Just as he was about to repeat his question, Hiro heard a soft whirring noise that sounded like a fishing rod being cast, the line coming out from the reel, coming from above him as power was restored to the train car's lights. As he looked up, Hiro came face to face with eight eyes and a pair of fangs the size of his hands as a massive spider descended from the ceiling. He could see a bead of venom about the size of a golf ball welling up on one of the fangs. Thinking fast, Hiro grabbed the beautiful woman, who was still oblivious to anything happening outside the pages of her book, by the arm and attempted to pull her out of harm's way. As Hiro pulled, however, the woman would not budge, almost like she weighed much more than her, or any human's, appearance gave hint to. He felt like he was pulling on a building made of lead, with zero give coming from the woman, even as he put all his weight into pulling her. Finally, Hiro gave up in his attempt to save the woman as the spider, which must have been 12 feet across at the widest point, lowered itself down onto the floor between him and the end of the car. It was so large that its central legs went from wall to wall across the subway car. Hiro had decided that he needed to save himself before he could worry about helping this woman any further. As he went to release her arm, however, he could not get his fingers to uncurl from her flesh. It was almost as if his hand had become melded with her arm. As Hiro tried to pull back with all his might, he came to a grim realization. 
this was not a woman, as much as his eyes told him it was. This woman was bait, and he had become the prey. The spider advanced as the realization came to Hiro's eyes. Within the yokai folklore of Japan, the Tsuchigumo is one of the older yokai within the lore. This yokai, or spirit, is a large aggressive spider. The origins of the Tsuchigumo date back to about the 12th century, during the Kamakura period. This period was marked by civil war and a large attempted invasion of Japan by the Mongol-ruled Yuan dynasty of China. The leader of the Mongol forces was Kublai Khan, the grandson of Genghis Khan. Although the Mongols were essentially a world superpower for the period, their invasion was twice ended by typhoons off of Kyushu, the southernmost islands off the Japanese island chain. The story of the Tsuchigumo is most well-known in the Japanese epic, The Tale of the Hike. This story tells about the struggle for control of Japan between the Taira clan and the Minamoto clan, called the Genpei War. If that name sounds familiar, the Minamoto clan, or the Genpei, as they were called as an abbreviation, are the family of a man named Minamoto no Yoritomo. He led the Minamoto clan during the Genpei War, along with his half-brother, Minamoto no Yoshitsune. Yoshitsune was said to be one of the greatest warriors of all time, embodying what would become the tenets of the samurai's code of honor. About a century before these men would become rulers of Japan, the name of the Genpei, or as it's read in Chinese, the Genji, was used as part of the story of one of the earliest novels, The Tale of Genji, which was written by a lady-in-waiting in the imperial court named Murasaki Shikibu. During the tale of the Hike, one of the members of the Minamoto clan, Minamoto no Yorimitsu, tracks down a yokai that is terrorizing the countryside. In this particular instance, the Tsuchigumo is even larger than a normal one, instead being called a Yamagumo, or mountain spider, as it's 60 feet wide. Yorimitsu is not even aware at first that what he's fighting is actually a giant spider because it's so large. This yokai also has the ability to shapeshift, at one point turning into a beautiful woman in an attempt to seduce Yorimitsu. However, when Yorimitsu and his partner finally slay the beast by cutting its abdomen open, human skulls begin to pour out from inside it, suggesting that this monster was a predator that preyed on the nearby villages. Interestingly enough, the Japanese word for tarantula, o suchigumo, is actually because the spiders are said to look like the yokai, not the other way around. Normally in folklore, the monster is named or based off of a pre-existing creature in nature. However, in the case of the tarantula, they were named after their similar appearance to the giant spider yokai. Because this period was marked by civil war, the term suchigumo actually predates the story of the mythic giant spider. This word was used as a derogatory way to describe clans that were in open rebellion against the emperor. In addition to it literally meaning earth spider, it can also mean one who hides in the ground. The yokai of the Tsuchigumo may have been a way to demonize those who had refused to bend a knee to the emperor. The Japanese are not the only culture to not only have a folklore creature associated with animals normally trodden underfoot, but to have that same force associated with war and enemies. Within ancient Babylon, the god Nurgle was worshipped as the god of war. By the time of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, Nurgle was the third most important god in their pantheon. Nurgle was considered the god of inflicted death, as he was the god of war, pestilence, and the underworld. In his different roles, Nurgle was depicted with different iconography, such as a mace, a bull, and a dagger. However, there is one icon that fit all of Nurgle's roles within the Babylonian pantheon, the fly. The fly was the eater of the corpses of the fallen, the bringer of pestilence, 
and often were quite common on a battlefield after the dust had settled and rot began to set in on the soldiers killed there. Within Babylonian folklore, the idea of disease was not something that was contagious per se, but was the side effects of being attacked by invisible demons and spirits. These spirits were all subservient to Nurgle and did his bidding. Worship of Nurgle was often a double-edged sword, as Nurgle was thought to accompany kings into battle as the bringer of death to the enemy. However, he could also be responsible for the deaths of thousands of innocents by plague within that same king's borders. Nurgle is seen in a very similar light as the Suchigumo, a malevolent being of destruction that exists to bring death to normal people, and perhaps to explain why death could come so suddenly in a world without modern conveniences. As both of these have arachnid and insect-based iconography, it's easy to write off all examples of folklore involving these kinds of animals as being symbols of death and entropy. This is not always the case. For example, the Egyptian god Kepri. Kepri was a lesser sun god, subservient to the much more famous Ra, and was depicted as having a head made of a scarab. Kepri played a very important role within the daily creation myth of the world, especially in the aspect of a scarab. At the end of each day, Ra, the sun god, was believed to die as the sun set. Kepri's role was to assist Ra as he had journeyed through the underworld. Each night, the god of chaos, Apep, who was a giant serpent, would try to eat Ra as he journeyed through the afterlife and prevent him from being reborn in the morning of each new day. Each sunrise was a victory over Apep and his chaos. Kepri served as one of the ways by which Ra was guided to each new day. His association with the scarab was one that the average Egyptian would see each night as scarabs traveled the land. The scarab, or as it is better known, the dung beetle, would roll balls of dung across the countryside, which it would use for food and as a nest for its eggs. When the eggs hatched, the scarab would emerge from the dung fully formed. So many people felt that the insects were simply emerging from nothing, being created spontaneously. The spontaneous creation was part of the rebirth of Ra each morning. There is some evidence as well that the idea may have been held that when scarabs were seen rolling a large ball of dung away, they were actually rolling away the extinguished sun, back to the east so that it could be reborn the next morning without interference from Apep. As part of this concept of death, rebirth, and resurrection, images of scarabs and their mummified remains were often entombed with the dead. These offerings would allow Kepri to not only be able to resurrect the sun each day, but also resurrect those who had died among the human population. It's unclear if this was to be considered as a literal resurrection, or if it was to simply help the dead move on to their new second life in the field of reeds, the idealized version of the Egyptian afterlife. This would be akin to the Judeo-Christian concept of heaven, and those who have died before us can act as our guide into paradise. One of the common threads associated with arachnid and insect folklore is that they seem to have a link to the afterlife. Within Aztec beliefs, there were several afterlifes that one could be assigned to depending on the cause of one's death. One of the rulers of these afterlifes was Itzpapotl, who is the skeletal warrior goddess of one of the paradise afterlives. This world was called Tamoenchan, and was believed to be the place where humans were originally created by the gods. Itzpapotl was depicted as a skeletal woman with long flowing hair, often holding a severed leg or femur, which was considered to be a war trophy during the pre-Columbian period. Most uniquely, she was also depicted as having large wings, but the type could vary. Often her wings were shown as butterfly wings, which is derived from her name, which means the obsidian butterfly or the clawed butterfly. Alternatively, she's also seen with bat wings, possibly due to bats being referred to as black butterflies and nawa. 
It is unclear if the obsidian portion of her name refers to her wings, which are sometimes depicted as being tipped with obsidian knives, or if it refers to the coloring of the creature that her wings come from, such as a bat. Itzpapalotl did have subjects in Tamoanchan, but not many were admitted to her paradise. It was the exclusive home to those who had died in infancy, which, unique for the time, granted them instant paradise with no additional requirement. This is in stark contrast to the Christianity brought by Spanish invaders, which taught that unborn babies must be baptized in order to be granted entrance to heaven. Although she had a terrifying visage, Itzpapotl was given the duty of protecting and defending the most innocent within Aztec culture, the infants. She was also seen as a guardian, with her femur bone trophy showing that she had won many battles. Although many of these mythic creatures did not have the spotlight that many of their contemporaries had, they still filled a very important role within each of their respective mythos. Just as within nature, although many of these roles filled by insects are not glamorous, they are necessary. These different beliefs made it so that the larger roles, held by more well-known beings, could run smoothly and tell a cohesive story. Thank you for listening to Folklore Fever. This episode was written and researched by me, Trevor Pullman. The opening theme is by Miyu. You can find more of his excellent work at thedarkpiano.com. If you would like to contact the podcast, please send an email to folklorefever at gmail.com. See you soon.